Good morning. The Bible reading today is from Luke 16, and it's verse 19 to 31, and it's on page 850 of the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. So Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with uh, every day. At this gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you are a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophet, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Friends, uh, let me say it's a very uh, challenging parable. It's a confronting parable that we deal with uh, this morning. And it may raise issues for you about suffering, hell, judgment, family members, and other concerns. I want to pray that God would help us to hear his word and to trust in him. Lord God, uh, please speak to us this morning from your word. But the seriousness of the decisions we make in, in trusting you or rejecting you, the importance of sharing your truth with others that they too would be prepared for eternity. May our hearts break for those who are walking away from you and are heading to a Christless eternity under your judgment. May we have love and compassion to bring good news that they would be changed. Give us the heart of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be honest, unrelenting torment in hell for all of eternity is not one of the more popular sermon topics in today's populist culture. In fact, uh, you hear very little of that in most churches these days. We talk about love and heaven, and we just sort of ignore the other bits, sadly. But Jesus does not shy away, for example, from condemning the legalistic Pharisees in Luke 16 for their love of money and their unwillingness to help in tangible, practical ways those who are suffering right before their eyes. Before this parable was told, there was another parable, and Jesus concludes with these words. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. Reminds us there's always a temptation for us to love other gods more than the true God. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The Pharisees might look privileged and live in luxury, but Jesus says in the life to come, things will be different. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that your wealth is an indication of some type of secure status in God's kingdom. He says there will be a complete reversal from what people esteem when God intervenes to bring final judgments. And then I think in this parable that was read to us, this parable is applied, I think, more than just the Pharisees, but to all of us. And there are two men. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Get the picture, will you? Covered with sores. Longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. You see him hungry. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So what's the first man like? What are we told? This is Jesus' parable. Jesus is trying to make a point and tell a story to make a spiritual point. There's a rich man who was phenomenally wealthy. That's the picture. He lived on easy street, we might say. The other was suffering in agony on this earth. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. You may not be sure, but purple is a color of royalty. To have purple in that first century meant that you were extremely wealthy. Fine linen was a fabric only available to the wealthiest. He dressed in the best and most fashionable clothes money could buy. That's the picture of this fellow. He lived in luxury. It implies sumptuous and regular feasting. People were coming over. He was running parties. He's got money. He can run the parties. Here's a guy who can take you on his boat on Sydney Harbour and invite you along. Eat, drink, and be merry. Sumptuous, regular feasting. It isn't any wonder that Lazarus in the parable is hanging outside his door. There might be a little bit of food left over, maybe for the beggar. The gate here, where the man is placed, is not a normal sort of gate. It's not a little gate like at my house. It's a Bridgeview Road, Beverly Hills, where you can sort of just open a gate. No, it's not like that at all. The Greek word pelona means an ornamental portico, such as usually adorned palaces or temples. It's a large gate. This man is filthy rich. Material prosperity oozed out of everyone, every pore of this guy's body, his clothes, his food, and his house. But I want you to notice something about this man. We're told that he's rich, but that's all we're told. We hear nothing about his family, his friends, or his achievements. A bit like the rich fool we preached on a few, few weeks ago. He died alone. His epitaph might read, He lies a dead rich guy. That's all he's got. There's something tragic about this person. And then there's the second man. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. A picture of extreme abject poverty. Jesus sets the contrast between the filthy rich and the terribly poor. 
he's laid at the rich man's gates. He's probably crippled. He can't get there himself, you see. Not only is he poor, he's crippled. It's probably why he's poor. People sprawled on the street. People walk past and show contempt towards him. He had no fine clothes. In fact, he had something else instead of fine clothes, we're told. He had a body covered with sores, reminiscent of Job in the Old Testament, for example. Covered there all over your body. You know, I get that I sore and I problem every so often. And one little thing where you feel like scratching, you ever been there? You imagine your whole body. Maybe a skin disease due to malnutrition. Permanently hungry. He longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He thinks, if I can just get that, to that gate, maybe I will get something to eat. And the dogs came and licked his sores. Last week we saw that the prodigal son hung out with pigs. This man hangs out with dogs. He doesn't invite the dogs. They come to him. Scavenger dogs roaming throughout the villages, licking Lazarus sores, merely increase his torment. Here's this man, it's a terrible picture. He's there, the dogs, he can't get rid of them. And poor man is almost dehumanized. His human dignity trampled upon and disgraced. But this poor man had something the rich man didn't have. And it's unusual in the parables for this to take place. This poor man has a name. To have a name is to be a person, to be valuable, to be significant, to matter to somebody. And you know when you meet someone, if you remember the name, Hi, John. How did you remember my name? He's not Hi, mate. It's Hi, John. Hi, Mary. He has a name. The poor beggar has a name. His name is Lazarus. He is a somebody. He matters to God. He doesn't matter to the rich guy, but he matters to God in his parable. He has a name. You know, in Hebrew, Lazarus is Eliezer which means he whom God helps. He whom God helps. You see, God gives him a name in the parable because God wants to tell us something. He is not forgotten by God. He's forgotten by the rich. He's forgotten by the community. He's not forgotten by God. Now, friends, a person who has suffered as he had, and it happens today, would often harbor bitterness and blame God and curse God. Job in the Old Testament was urged by his friends to curse God. But you see, there's no cursing in this parable by this man. There may be an indication that he had a faith in God and looked to God alone for vindication as the other poor people in the Old Testament did. They looked forward to when God would come, make all things right. But the poor would be looked after. A great reversal of how it is now. Two unequally or totally unequal men, one with wealth and no identity and the other utterly poor but known personally to God. Let me ask you a question. Which one would you rather be? Filthy rich? Or spiritually rich? Known by God? Some of you say, well, I'd like to have both. <laughs> Bit of money. Oh, we live in Australia. I mean, it costs, houses cost a lot of money. And we understand all that. Do you love God or do you love money? What's first? Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And then we have two destinies. 
time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Hades, in the Bible, by the way, they use different words for hell. Sometimes hell, Hades, they're, they're talking about the place of the dead under the judgment of God. Uh, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And Jesus is telling a parable here to show that they're in different places. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things and now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And beside all this between us and you a great chasm has been set in place that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. When Jesus tells this parable, the people of his day are surprised. Because the people of Jesus' day, even the Jewish believers, believed that riches were a blessing for obedience while suffering was a punishment for sin. And Jesus turns it all upside down and says, no, no, you have misunderstood it. And we end up with the rich man in hell, or in hell and the poor man in heaven. And then, well, how does that work? We also note that uh, this parable is a literary device for teaching spiritual truths by allegorical means. We don't read parables like history, but Jesus uses conventional ideas to make a point. The whole idea of being carried by angels to Abraham's side is without parallel in the rest of the New Testament. You don't have that language. But it exists uh, in common rabbinical writings of the day. So Jesus seems to be taking us something that the Jews know about and it's talked about and he uses that language that they understand in his parable to make his own point. We believe, well I believe and Christians disagree, between your death and the final resurrection. For example, if I were to die today, I would believe that my spirit would go to be with Jesus. My body's laid in the grave because I plan to be buried, I've told my wife. <laughs> and... Uh, and then on the final day when Christ returns, I am then resurrected and I receive a new body to go with my spirit that has been alive that whole time. I call it the intermediate state between death and between the final resurrection when Jesus returns. And Christians sometimes disagree exactly what's happening in that period of time. But in that time, we're in a disembodied state. Right? My spirit goes to be with Christ, my body's laid in the ground. But in the parable... That's not the case, right? There's a rich man's tongue, there's Lazarus, Lazarus's finger. Uh, I'm just trying to point out that he's using para, a parable to make a spiritual point. But certain things are nonetheless very clear here. I think what Jesus is trying to say, number one, there is a heaven and hell, a place of blessing and a place of punishment. Be warned, he says, there are consequences to the choices you make. Luke 12 says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear, fear him, who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Take God seriously. Secondly, our personalities survive death in a conscious state. That's important. When you die, you continue. When I die, Ange continues to be with Christ. At death, a distinction takes place between those who are in Christ, those who are outside of Christ. It already takes place at death, the final judgment sim simply confirms what has taken place. That's why we say our believers are with Christ now. They're not just dead waiting until the second coming. Oh, yeah, you're one of mine. No, no, they're already with Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, which is better by far. 
The dead are already in a state of blessing together with all the other redeemed of every age, represented by Abraham in this parable, and the other a state of isolated anguish represented by the lonely rich man in hell. And the separation is fixed for eternity. Besides all this, between us and your great chasm has been set so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Sometimes people will say to me, and they've probably said to you, well, I wouldn't mind going to hell, mate. I'll be there with all my mates, have a few drinks and parties. We'll be up through the night. It's not like that. See, there's a picture of anguish and torment and loneliness. I was at a big soccer game last night. We lost, sadly. 34,000 people singing and dancing for the Wanderers or for Sydney FC. And we're walking back to the station afterwards with all of our friends. Hell's not like that. The picture of loneliness, separation and torment. Now some people, uh, for example, the Catholic Church will talk of purgatory there's heaven and hell and there's purgatory in the middle and uh, you sort of work off some of your sins and people pray for you and get you out of there. You'll notice there's no middle ground and if you weren't aware that Protestant theology and Greek Orthodox theology, none of them have a purgatory. So it's just interesting that Catholics have developed there over the centuries. And sometimes people think, the storms are coming by the way, and we hope our, our temporary shelter will last out there. You can just stay in here, we'll shut the doors if it gets wet. And that's why, friends, I think we need to tell people about the love of Jesus and invite them to repent, to come back to him, to find life in him, because it really matters. A few years ago, I was called into St. George Hospital, and uh, I'm on the list as a chaplain, so emergency for people who don't have a church background, and sometimes they'll ask for a Baptist minister, um, and they'll call me in. I remember going in, and I, I sat with a man and his partner, and the family were there, and she was about to die, about to turn off some machines, and asked me if I would come and read the Bible and pray. And I came in and read the Bible, and I prayed. And, um, and then he, uh, he invited me out. He said, Ange, can I see you alone? I, said, I mean, picture this, right? I'm, it's about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, uh, she's going to die, and he wants to talk to the minister, the chaplain. He said, what's going to happen to my wife? Or my, my partner. You don't want to be asked that question. And um, I said, you know what the Bible says. I'm not the judge. God is the judge. But the Bible says that God loves us, that he died for us, and he invites us to believe in him, to have eternal life. But if we continue to reject him, we find ourselves under God's judgment. I know that, but I, you know, I was baptized. I grew up in a church, in a Baptist church, uh, but she doesn't believe any of that and she's never been taught that so what's going to happen to her deep breath I'm not God all I can tell you is what God's word says and God knows her and her response to him what was he after you know what he was after he wanted someone to tell him that she would be in heaven that night I couldn't do that I'm not God. And she, he told me she didn't believe anything about God or Jesus and she lived her life without God and her life was coming to an end. All I could do is point him to the truth of the Scriptures and hope that he might come to faith in, in Christ. Yet tomorrow, I'll be doing the funeral for Heather Smith. 
Heather was 89. She'd been in this church for many years. Converted to the Billy Graham crusade, I think, 1959. And she loved Jesus. She lived for Jesus. She trusted in Jesus. And yeah, hopefully you can hear me over the, over the rain. <laughs> but Heather, I can speak with confidence tomorrow at her funeral because she'd received what God offered her. We believe she is with Christ now. Thirdly, the importance of believing God's word and repenting. One of the difficulties with this parable, when you just read it, unless you sort of really see what Jesus is getting at, it seems to be that one gets into heaven not by faith, simply by being poor. One guy ends up in hell not because he's a sinner, simply because he was rich, right? You think, well, they don't talk about faith in Jesus. Where's all of that? We know from the rest of the Bible that salvation is by God's grace through faith. Uh, Jesus taught it. The Apostle Paul taught it. So where is that in here? Let me say the last five verses will give us that answer. So the rich man now is worried about his five brothers. The five brothers are you and me, Pharisees, everyone listening to the story. What about I'm in hell? Can I warn them? Can they be saved? He says, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. If I have five brothers, let him warn them that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, listen to this verse. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Listen to that, repent, right? If someone goes to them, they will repent. He said said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even someone rises from the dead. Friends, the rich man's problem is not that he is rich. There are plenty of rich Christians. The rich man's problem is that he hasn't repented from his sins, but he wants to make sure that his brothers repent. I think that's the point of the story. He had never repented, never really had a relationship with God in his lifetime. His God was money, unlike Lazarus, who had a name and was known by God. And what is the evidence that this man never repented? And this is a sign. Repentance and trust in God leads to a change in action and behavior. If you trust in Jesus, then it's going to change how you live. This guy had all the money, all the wealth, and there's this poor beggar outside of his gate, and he did nothing about him. He did nothing about him. He didn't lay a finger to help him out. As a Jew who knew Moses and the prophets, he knew the Old Testament, he would have known the major biblical teaching, care for the poor, be generous to the poor, care for the lost and the broken, care for them. Micah 6.8, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, yet this man did nothing. So he says, tell my brothers so they will repent, put God first and live God's way. Friends, the thing in the tale for us is this, the New Testament says the same, James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
He says, if it doesn't show up in your lifestyle, then you don't have a genuine faith. You haven't truly repented like the rich man. 1 John 3 says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Friends, what I want to take away from this today is that true faith works. If it loves God more than money, true love cares for others, it gives generously and sacrificially. Now, we live in Australia, thankfully, a great welfare system, or maybe you think it's not that good, free public hospitals, social housing. None of this existed in the first century, by the way. So the beggars had nothing. They didn't get their pay into their bank account uh, every two weeks, for example. They had nothing. Now, we have more. But we also know there's still great poverty in Australia and great poverty across the globe. When we see it, we need to do something about it. That's why we give food donations to needy people in our community. That's why we've raised money for the persecuted church around the world. That's why we sponsor children through Baptist World Aid. That's why we give to appeals like Compassion and World Vision and others. Because we see the need and we've been touched by Jesus and we want to make a difference to the lives of others. But what will turn our hearts back to God? The rich man needs his brothers to repent and escape hell. Send them, Father. Warn them not to come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have all they need already. They have the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, he said, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes back to them, and Jesus anticipating his resurrection, they will repent. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. He says, show them a miracle, then they'll repent. People say to me today, if God heals my son, then I'll believe. Show me the miracle. If God gives me a job, then I'll repent. Show me the miracle. You know what God says to him? The miracle won't do it. You have the truth in the word of God. Listen to the word of God. And a friend of mine a few years ago, he's in a Bible study group, not yet a Christian, exploring Christianity. And I worked really hard, I prayed hard, and, and I convinced him that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so compelling that he ought to believe it. And he said to me, he said, Ange, you're right, I'm convinced that Jesus they put on a cross, who was then placed in a tomb, I am convinced he rose from the dead. All the evidence points to his resurrection. I went, praise God, isn't that fantastic? So, will you now give your life to Jesus? Will you repent? He said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, hey, can you believe he rose from the dead and not repent? See, he needed the Spirit of God working in his heart through the Word of God to be convicted of. By God's grace, a few years later, he repented and put his faith in Jesus. So you could see the miracles. See, many of the Pharisees heard about Jesus' resurrection. Did they believe? No, they chased Christians out of Jerusalem, putting them to death. Jesus said in the parable, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. One of the books I found helpful as I was preparing this sermon is a, a book called Preaching the Parables by American author Craig Blomberg, leading New Testament scholar. I was surprised by how he titled his sermon. It was this, Can I be saved without stewardship? Can I be saved without 
being a generous giver. He writes, Can I be saved without generous Christian giving of many different kinds over a lifetime? I believe it's logically impossible as saying we've experienced God's forgiveness without forgiving others. Or that we know His love without loving others. God has been phenomenally generous in giving us eternal life. And when He has blessed us with material abundance on top, how can we not share generously from it if His Spirit truly dwells in us and guides us? The Bible says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Don't be that nameless rich guy who keeps it all for himself. In 2 Corinthians 8, 7, the Apostle Paul writes to the church and says, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving says Christian it's good to know your Bible it's good to, to pray good to do all these things but be excellent in giving to help those in need I'm not commanding you he says but I want to test this, the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich May God move in us by his Spirit that we truly repent and live out this new lifestyle that God has called us to. Amen.